This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. If you're sitting at home and you've got a little bit more time up your sleeve than you usually have, it is probably an incredible opportunity to make the most of this time to learn, grow, and improve in some kind of way, perhaps by reading books. Right now, it's such a vital period of time for you personally. There's no better time in history than right now to improve your knowledge, enhance your skills, gain a greater understanding of yourself and of the world around you. Blinkist is a great way to do all of those things. They've added to their already great offering. So on top of their 15-minute book summaries, you can also now purchase entire audiobooks at up to 65% discount. You can buy full audiobooks through the platform for as little as $9, which is an absolute steal. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our What You Will Learn audience. If you go to Blinkist.com forward slash What You Will Learn, you're going to get a free seven-day trial. So, head to Blinkist, that's spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T.com forward slash What You Will Learn to start your free seven-day trial. Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday, an ancient strategy for modern life. This is the third of Ryan Holiday's modern Stoicism trilogy. We started with Obstacle is the Way, then we moved to Ego is the Enemy, now he rounds it out with Stillness is the Key. And we start back in the first century AD with a look into Seneca, one of Rome's most influential power brokers. He was struggling to work. It was just disturbances all around him. He was living on top of a gym. There were athletes working out. There were dudes getting massages on the street for some reason, these old fat guys. There were swimmers in the water in his lake outside the window. There was some pickpocketer being arrested by the cops and causing a scene. Children were playing and laughing. There were birds everywhere. There were dogs barking. And he couldn't manage to concentrate to settle down and do his work. So he made it his newest life mission to find peace and serenity and to actually think clearly and write perfectly in these times when there was so much chaos going on outside. He said, I've toughened my nerves against all that sort of thing. I forced my mind to concentrate and keep from straying to things outside itself. All outdoors may be bedlam, provided that there is no disturbance within. He wrote that people need to be still within themselves. Obviously, if you can find stillness within yourself, it doesn't matter what's going on around you. It means you can focus. And what Holiday found was that this similar idea actually popped up in all of the different uh, ancient texts, religions, philosophies, other schools of thoughts. The Buddhists called it... Actually, I'll leave this one with you, Jones, man. What did the different religions call it? So, the Buddhists spoke of Apheka. So, Apheka for (laughs) those who don't speak Buddhist. The Muslims (laughs) called it as Lama. The Hebrews call it... (laughs) <laughs> Hishtavut That's probably good And the Bag The Bagdavad Gita <laughs> Called it Samat Samat Vam And the Greeks had Euthymia And the Christians called it Oh shit here we go Aequimnaminus <laughs> That's it They all had They all meant the same thing And it all boiled down to what we call in English Stillness It means to be steady while the world spins around you. It means to act without frenzy. It means to hear only what needs to be heard. And it means to possess quietude on command. So basically, when the the world's going crazy, you need some way to, within yourself, be able to focus and be still. There's a quote here from Blasey Pascal. And he said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. This is probably more true than ever, I think, right now. It's very hard to sit quietly just because you've always got that podcast or you've got Instagram or Facebook. It's very, very hard right now to be bored. 
So stillness is the key to thinking clearly. Stillness is the key to making tough decisions, managing our emotions, identifying the right goals, maintaining relationships, building good habits, being productive. Basically, stillness is the key to just about everything, to being a better parent, a better artist, a better investor, a better athlete, a better scientist, a better human being. So stillness is the key that unlocks all that we are capable of in this life. So to achieve stillness, we need to focus on three domains. And this is what we'll be covering in this episode, the domain of the mind, the domain of the spirit, and the domain of the body. On October 14, 1962, John F. Kennedy went to bed and the next morning he woke up the whole world had changed. That evening whilst he slept, the CIA identified the ongoing construction of the Soviet's ballistic nuclear missiles on the island of Cuba. So, you know, these nukes going to be constructed 90 miles from the American shores. So JFK, he told the public that each missile was capable of reaching Washington, the Panama Canal, Mexico City, Cape Canaveral, basically every city on the east of US that could have been taken out by these nuclear missiles. So if this war broke out, as many as 70 million people would have died in the US and Russia. So no doubt in this moment, it could have been the biggest moment in all of human history. So the stakes had never been higher. There was a lot of unknowns here, but what JFK knew for certain was that he faced this unprecedented escalation of what was this long-term brewing of the Cold War between the US and the USSR. And ultimately in this moment, his main thing was to not make things worse. Shit was obviously getting bad and it was up to him, whatever decision he made, had to make sure that things weren't worse. All around him, all of his advisors were saying, we've got to take action. We've got to strike first before they strike us. This is ridiculous. The Russians are out to get us. They're trying to take us down. Let's wipe them out before they can wipe us out. And that logic is sort of, you know, pretty primal. It feels, feels kind of satisfying. There's a bit of aggression coming towards you, so you fight back with even more aggression. There's a bit of tit, so you give a bit of tat back. But what JFK did was, thankfully, he'd been reading a few books about World War One, and he realized that these overconfident, confrontational leaders who rushed into taking swift and abrupt action actually made things worse. And once things started, they couldn't stop. So what Kennedy wanted to do was just to slow everything down. Before rushing into making a hasty decision, he wanted everyone to just pause and think. It sounds kind of counterintuitive in when this chaos arises and everything's erupting. You feel like you're just going to go out there and just do shit. But for Kennedy, he obviously just waited and waited and waited and used time as a tool in this circumstance. So instead of rushing into this aggressive decision, that's exactly what he did. He delayed the action on his side so the US could think further and more clearly. And it also gave the, the Russians some, an opportunity to pause and think and think about what was at stake. What he decided to do was rather than swift action to try and bomb the sites where they were building the nuclear missiles, was he actually set up a blockade. And in fact, he didn't even call it a blockade because that's kind of aggressive. He called it a quarantine, which was basically he enforced a bit of a no-go zone around Cuba where they monitored who was going in, who was coming out. They moved 100,000 troops to Florida, so they were super close to any action that may go down, but they were just ready. They weren't taking any aggressive strikes at this point in time. And so what this did was it allowed him and his side to think, but it also allowed the USSR leader Khrushchev, it gave him some time to think. And actually, it was a couple of days later that Kennedy got a letter written by Khrushchev that said, hey, I've been thinking, you know, we're sort of like, we're both sides, we're pulling on either side of a rope, and in the middle, there's this knot, this knot that's been tied up, you know, over the last years of this brewing 
Cold War. And the more we pull at it, the tighter this knot gets. There's going to be some point where as if we pull it too tight, that knot will never be able to undo it. And the only way to undo it is to take a knife and slash through it, which is obviously uh, a lot of chaos around the world if we get to full-scale nuclear war. So Khrushchev said, let's stop pulling on this knot. How can we work together to untie the knot? So with this realisation, both sides, the crisis was over as quickly as it began. And it was because of this stillness amongst all the chaos that the de-escalation actually happened. So this stillness is somewhat articulated in a lot of different proverbs. So in the Tao Te Ching, what Kennedy had done, he'd stilled the muddied water in his mind until he could see through it. Or in meditations in the world of Marcus Aurelius, like the rock that the waves keep crashing over, it stands unmoved and the raging of the sea falls still around it. So we're all going to face some kind of crisis in our lives. It may not be at the level of escalating nuclear war, but whatever crises we face are still going to be important to us. It could be that a business is on the brink of collapse. It could be heading towards divorce. It could be a decision about the future of our career. It could be any moment where the the opportunity to win the game falls directly into our hands. These situations all call upon our mental resources. We need some unemotional non-reactionary thinking. If we just are emotional, if we just react to the first thing that comes to our mind, we're probably going to make poor decisions. So in any of these tough situations, we need to be fully present. We need to empty our mind of any preconceptions. We need to take our time to sit quietly and reflect and reject all the distractions that are coming our way. We need to think deliberately and not be paralyzed by all the chaos that is around us. Okay, so we must cultivate mental stillness to succeed in life when all these crises that are going to come our way. And it's not easy, but it is essential to do this. So this first part of the book by Holiday is all about the domain of the mind. And it's how we handle these chaotic situations. And one of the ways we can control the domain of the mind is to limit the inputs that we allow into our life. Herbert Simon, who's uh, I'm guessing one of Ryan Holiday's mates, just a bloke from the pub, yeah. said that a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. It means if we've got too much shit coming our way, we can't really focus on anything that's important. And what Napoleon did when he was in the, the, the midst of war was he told his secretary, any mail that comes, wait three weeks before you open it. So the letters that he opens were sent three weeks ago. And what he found was that a surprising amount of these letters were actually, you know, at the time, the person writing it thought they were so important, they were so urgent, they had to be addressed immediately. You realize that within the three weeks of doing nothing, the situations have mostly just sorted themselves mm. out without his action. Man, that would be an interesting exercise to do in the 21st century. Mm. Just have the emails kind of automatically disappear and come back three weeks later. Yeah. I think some of those little little fires will just sort themselves out, but there'll be a few big bushfires raging on as well. <laughs> You'd miss a couple of things, but I reckon the vast majority of stuff where people are just shooting emails back and forth and they think it's vitally important right now and they need your decision immediately, I reckon a lot of the stuff would sort itself out. Yeah, I think it's a good exercise to get that delete trigger, trigger, <laughs> you know, trigger ready when those emails come through. I've gotten very good, I reckon, at just deleting, just Getting rid bang, of bang, 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 straight away. I think, it's a, I think it's a good move. I think that a lot of things that seem urgent at the time could probably wait a little bit. And it, actually, if you waited, you might find that the urgent stuff that you were going to waste time on wasn't actually necessary in the first place. Mm, Epictetus said, if you wish to improve, be content to appear clueless or stupid on extraneous matters. 
I guess that means you know you don't have to watch the news. You don't have to keep up with the gossip of which celebrities broken up with who, and you don't have to realize that everything that's going on around the world. If you watch the nightly news, if you miss a couple of stories, you're actually not going to be out of the loop. Anything that's really important is going to find its way to you. But all the little stuff that you're wasting your time thinking about and worrying about, you really don't need to worry about that sort of stuff. So limiting your inputs is a big thing to achieve in the stillness of the mind. Holiday says so is seeking wisdom. Yeah, every school of thought has some kind of word for wisdom. It means seeking truth. I'll let you rattle. You were so good last time. I'll let you rattle off uh, the the different mm. words for, for seeking wisdom. Mate, I don't know how many people are still listening. I, I pissed off all the Christians, the Muslims, the Buddhists because I cooked every pronunciation of, of something that's so you know important to them. Well, if there's anyone still listening, let's try and get rid of them now. Hey, oh, shit. I just read it. <laughs> so wisdom or the search for truth in the different languages. Hebrew, it's chokmah. Islam is hikmah. Greek, it's Sophie. I think it's Sophia. Sophie. No, Sophie. Sophie. Latin, serpentia. Buddhism, prana. So basically, seeking wisdom is one of the virtues in every one of the, the major religions. Yeah, each religion has their own uh, individual spin on it, but ultimately it all boils down to the need to ask questions, you need to study and reflect the importance of bringing a sense of intellectual humility to your learning and by using the power of experiences, especially mistakes and failures, to open your eyes to what is the truth and what is the understanding. It's one thing to just read somebody else's stories. It's another thing to go through those experiences for yourself to truly understand it. Yeah, if we think back to JFK's story, one of the big reasons he just didn't jump in there because he read a lot about the First mm. World War and got the learnings there. And that was you know, another one of the reasons why they got the best outcome. So books, they're great introductory steps to all this. I mean, Tolstoy, he wrote, I don't understand how some people can live without communicating with the wisest people who ever lived on earth. I think people, when they realize the value in a book, they totally understand that quote. Once you read some books that change you in big ways and reveal understandings of the world, you can't believe or understand why no one else in the world is actually reading all these books. Yeah, the new cliche is that people who don't read have no advantage over people who can't read. So, Ryan Holiday is saying that books... They're basically an essential. You can't stop there. You're not going to learn everything you need to know from books, but it's pretty much the essential first stop on your way to seeking wisdom. And there's a little advantage in reading with the arrogance of your to just confirm your pre-existing opinions either. You should go out there and read as wide and broadly as possible to get different perspectives on the same objective things. Like Hitler here, he's he not the best person in all of history, I would say. But he used to read the classics of history. But instead of learning something new, he kind of just went down his own confirmation biasness and just the correctness of his views and... <laughs> what did you say Correctness of his views and, you know, why he externalized the blame on Jews, maybe. I don't know what. That was a stuff up. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's a real Freudian slip. But what he was saying was that, uh, you know, Hitler was just reading things and all these classics of history, every time he read something, he was like, yeah, I've, I've got this right. I've really worked this out here. He was reading to confirm the things he already believed rather than reading with a sense of intellectual humility coming from a place of thinking that you don't know everything and trying to learn something new. So it's inevitable that the diligent student, so the superstar student, is going to uncover disconcerting or challenging ideas about the world and about themselves. So if you're feeling unsettled by reading a book, then you're in the right space. It's better just than crashing through life and into each other like just blind idiots and you realize the big truths at the very end. Yeah, I think by looking to books and looking to other wise people and looking to other people's experiences, you can shortcut a lot of those mistakes that you're about to make by learning what other people have done in the past. 
Another important element of calming the mind, finding stillness of the mind is actually to let go. And so it's letting go of any attachment to any outcome and just, I guess, just being. We've probably got the best name I've ever come across in my life here. And it's a great archery master, Awakenzo. Man, that's a pretty cool name. Awakenzo sounds like an archery master. Yeah. I'm going to name my kid Awakenzo. Interesting. I'll drop the Jones. <laughs> It'll be like sure, just a single name, Awakenzo. But this, I think that name's already taken. I think they've forgotten about this bloke. He's probably dead. <laughs> He's probably a few centuries dead now. But he did not focus on teaching the technical mastery of the bow in true Kenzo style. He spent almost no time instructing students how to deliberately aim and shoot. And instead of telling them that, he told them to simply draw back and let the shot fall off like a ripe fruit would just fall off a tree. Just mm. when it's ready, just release. Yeah, he was teaching the important mental skill of detachment from outcome. He says that what stands in the way of people becoming good archers is what he calls willful will, as in we want to be in full control and have full power to dictate what happens next. We want to be able to dictate that once we release that arrow, it's going to go exactly to the bullseye that we're aiming for. But instead, what Kenzo was saying was focus on technique first, focus on just shooting and finding the perfect rhythm for your for your archery shots. He actually didn't train people with targets at all. He just... In the beginning, they just shot. They were just shooting into, into nothingness. And then what he would do was he'd put a hay bale right in front of them so you'd shoot and it would hit the hay bale straight away. And it wasn't until later, once they'd almost mastered the art of the technique, that he introduced targets into the mix. Yeah, trying too hard to do things doesn't always have the best outcome. I've, in the past, had trouble sleeping when I try too hard to fall asleep. If you're at the bar and you're trying to attract someone and you're trying too hard, that'll never go down well. <laughs> definitely won't go well. Basically, any circumstance, I think, if you're just trying too hard, it's not the way to go. You need to kind of let go and be flexible with whatever the situation is and just yeah. simply just loosen up. Yeah, I think about going to the driving range. I'm not a good golfer by any means. But if you think if you're trying to hit as hard as you can, if you're trying to hit it really, mm. really hard, you're almost destined to just smack it on the top and it'll just dribble off about two meters in front of you or if you know the sense of attachment of thinking, where is this going to go? If you hit and pull your head up too quick to look where it's gone, inevitably mm. it slices off and it goes 30 meters off into the woods. Mate, did I tell you about how I went at golf the first time I ever played? How'd you go? Full Kenzo. Really? Yeah. I was expecting myself to be shit. Yeah. And I went up and I just wasn't, gonna, wasn't trying at all. And I just smacked it, just well, beat everyone. Go. That's the way to go. And it was just like a perfect drive. <laughs> and the whole day I was chipping from all kinds of angles. <laughs> Anyway, the second time I played golf, I was, I was hopeless because yeah. I was probably <laughs> yeah. lost the Kenzo effect. I think if you try to hit it too hard or you try to look exactly where you're trying to hit it, the more you try to hit the golf ball straight, the, the further it's going to slice off course. So the full Kenzo style is all about focus, patience, breathing, persistence, stillness, and most of all, just the ability to let go. So this is what we need in life, just to really loosen up and just become flexible to circumstance. If you think about how this can apply to different situations, an actor, a really good actor, is not the one who thinks really hard about trying to become a new character. It's actually the actor who lets go and just surrenders themselves to the role of becoming that new person. If you think about a comedian, if a comedian tries really hard to find funny jokes, they, they're not going to be funny at all. It's actually by letting go of that outcome that they're going to notice that quirky thing that nobody else has realized before. Or if you think about an entrepreneur, if you're walking around the street actively looking for an opportunity, you're 
you're specifically searching for something that's missing in the world and you want to find the perfect opportunity where you can make a lot of money and you're going out purely with the intention of finding something, you're probably going to miss it. It's actually the people who deliberately stop thinking about it. They let go of that uh, attachment to the outcome. That's when they're going to notice something that everybody else around the world is missing. In June 2008, Tiger Woods birdied the final hole of the US Open to make up his one-shot deficit and force a full 18-hole playoff the next day. The following day, he took an early three-stroke lead, but he surrendered it. He was behind by a couple of strokes, but eventually he came storming home. He birdied that final hole, forced a sudden-death playoff, and on the 19th hole, the 488-foot par-4, he birdied it again and took his third US Open title. Now, this is one of the finest moments in golf. Here's uh, the roller coaster ride he went on. But more importantly, most people didn't even realize he actually had a torn ACL and his leg was broken in two places. And he was able to fight through. And, you know, to call this a perseverance and persistence and grit is probably an understatement. So I remember Tiger Woods around this stage. He was probably the best athlete on the planet and one of the best of all time. He just dominated and dominated. But a few months later, if you remember, he was finally caught with his mistress out in a hotel within Australia and all of his personal secrets were no longer secret. So despite his ridiculous and amazing success in the golf world, he had these demons that he was having to cover up this whole time. Yeah, everything came out. Once one thing came out, everything started flooding out. I'm sure all the other people trying to cash in on the, the magazine stories, the text messages came out, the affairs with porn stars, the frantic sex in church parking lots. Sex church with some, parking lots? Yeah. So a 21-year-old daughter of one of his family friends as Oof. well. Tiger. He went, he went hard. So basically this, this ultimate sportsman who was able to at will stop his 130-mile-per-hour golf swing, he was actually at the mercy of the insatiable riptides that lurked beneath the surface of his placid demeanor in his social life. So Tiger was controlling one area of his life and that was the mind. And he was out of control of his spirit. And that's the second part of this book. We're looking at stillness of the spirit. And those who are seeking stillness of the spirit must come to develop a strong moral compass, steer clear of envy and jealousy and harmful desires, come to terms with painful wounds of their childhood, cultivate relationships and love in their lives, and understand there will never be enough and that the unchecked pursuit of more ends only in bankruptcy. One thing we need to ensure we do is choose virtue. Ultimately, we do have a choice. We do have some free will. And throughout life, Rolf Waldo Emerson says that life is meaningless to the person who decides that their choices have no meaning. We need to recognize that we do have some control over ourselves. We need to recognize that we do have some meaning and that choosing virtue is what's going to set us on the right path. So we do have the gift of free will and we can choose things that are good and we can choose things that are bad. So with this gift, we need to be choosing virtue. And whatever our choices are, these are the things that are going to mean if we experience this inside peace or not. There's no question that it is certainly possible to get ahead in life by choosing the wrong things. We can get ahead by lying, cheating, stealing, being generally awful to other people. In some instances, this might actually be the quickest way to the top, in fact, but it's definitely not going to be something that is sustainable. It comes at the expense of your own self-respect, but it also comes at the expense of security. If you've got to the top through unscrupulous means, you can lose that power just as quickly as you gained it. Mm. If you think about back to Tiger, outside looking in, you might think, oh, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars and something you might be a little bit envious about. 
But if you move into Tiger's body in those single moments when he got found out and all his demons were revealed and his family was torn apart, he would have been going through an absolute inner hell. So he wasn't able to choose virtue and if he did, he would be living this absolutely amazing high life. It's an intensive exercise to cultivate a higher moral code and a higher standard that you set for yourself to live by. You need to sit down and ask yourself, what is important to me? How am I going to live and why? And what would I rather die for than betray? Which is a bit intense, but uh, Holiday says, these are not simple questions. They're not just like a multi-choice personality quiz you see on Facebook. To achieve true stillness of the spirit, you need these solid virtues by asking yourself these deep questions and thinking deeply about them. So choosing virtue is the key to stillness. Another is your relationship with enough. And I think this story gets told a lot of different times in different ways with different names. But in this case, we've got Kurt and Joseph. They're at a party of a billionaire in New York City. And Kurt, he joked around, they're looking around, it's like, you know, billionaire, it's got a lot of fancy shit everywhere. And he asked the question, how does it feel that this billionaire made more money yesterday than all of your book sales will in your whole entire career? And like for a lot of people, we'll be like, oh, that's a pretty painful question. Mm. But Joseph answered, mate, I've got something that he will never have, the knowledge that I've got enough. Mm. That's a powerful thing, having enough. I'm sure that, that billionaire, he's made a shitload of money. He's acquired a shitload of possessions. But will he ever have enough compared to Joseph who recognized that he's been able to create what he wants to create in the world? He's put some books out into the world and he's satisfied with what he's achieved. If you're always striving for more and more and more, when will you ever get to that end point where you've achieved your goals? Yeah, you get to the one finish line and if you're on the treadmill of more, the treadmill just keeps on going. You never reach this end point. You think, this is it, now what? And you keep moving. There's no stillness ever for the person who can't appreciate the things as they are, particularly when the person has objectively done a lot more. Mm. Lao Tzu says that when you realize there is nothing lacking, the world belongs to you. So it's one of those deep quotes from a deep man, Lao Tzu, but it has a, a profound impact that if you are constantly searching for something that's missing in your life, mm. you'll probably never find it. There's always going to be something else that's missing once you acquire it. Yeah, definitely. And I love the application here of when you're after that new thing of the Greek mythological character Hydra, when you achieve that one thing or you finally get to the point where you can buy it, as soon as you get there, it's like Hydra. When you cut Hydra's head off and you achieve one goal, Hydra grows two back. So the more and more you get, the amount you need also increases in proportion. So when it comes to stillness of the spirit, we found that choosing virtue is important. We found that finding a place where you have enough is important rather than constantly striving for more. And one other element of stillness of the spirit is about conquering anger and recognizing that you shouldn't be using anger as your sole source of fuel. And he uses the example of one of uh, another one of the sporting's greatest legends of all time, Michael Jordan. Now, after Michael Jordan had retired from playing, he was accepted into the NBA Hall of Fame in 2009. And so ultimately, this was like the crowning achievement. It was the final recognition of a stellar career that included six NBA championships, two Olympic gold medals, 14 all-star selections, as well as the highest scoring average in the history of basketball. And so MJ walked up onto the stage. He joked saying that I was just going to walk up and say thank you and then walk off but I couldn't do it. And he started with you know, a few pleasant thank yous, talking about his family. He talked how he used to fight with his brothers. They made him more competitive. He used to fight with his sisters because they were smarter than him when it came to the schoolwork and that made him competitive in that arena. But you know, this guy who was the ultimate man of basketball, the best player to have ever lived, 
He had nothing to prove at this point, but he started going on about all the people that had ever wronged him throughout his whole entire career. He revealed his anger at the coach when he was young for not picking him on his team. He had a crack at the chairman of the Bulls, Jerry Craws, when he said, organizations win championships, not players. And John thought, you know, basically <laughs> won it. Probably was right. And as his speech went on, he got more and more serious and more and more scathing in his attacks. And it got more and more personal, just having cracks at all the people. Some of them were just hanging out in the room. So MJ intended that speech to be awesome and helpful to everybody. And just to show people what drove him. But it was kind of awkward because the people looking like, oh, it just looks like he was just an angry man and he held a grudge this whole time in his whole career. Yes, it was something that gave him fuel towards his greatness. But at the same time, he just hung on to this anger, which really hurt his inner state. Basically, the, th- the thing that drove him towards being the greatest player that ever lived was constantly feeling like a loser. He felt like he wasn't good enough. He felt like his coach didn't pick him for the team. He felt like people didn't respect him enough. He felt like people said, you know, you're pretty good, but maybe you're not as good as uh, Magic Johnson or Larry Bird. Maybe we'll get there one day. He had this constant fuel of the anger and the hatred towards everybody that ever said anything bad about him. And that was the thing that drove him to his ultimate success. So I guess one way to look at it is, MJ became the greatest basketball player in the world. But the other way to look at it is that it's a bit sad that, you know, the guy who the only way to get there was by training hard, by thinking of everybody who had ever said anything bad about him. And even 10 years after his career had finished, he was still holding all these grudges from every single thing that every person had ever said. Yeah, he didn't really ever achieve that contentment that he probably thought he was going to get when he actually became the greatest. Holiday says, how excellent is excellence if it doesn't make us feel content, happy and fulfilled? So for Jordan, despite being the best person in the world of basketball, in many ways, he was still a loser because he never reached it. Winston Churchill had an extremely productive life. He was first thrust into combat at age 21. At age 22, he wrote his first best-selling book. And by age 26, he was elected to public office where he served for the next six and a half decades. Over the course of his life, he wrote over 10 million words in 40 different published books. He'd painted more than 500 paintings. He delivered more than 2,500 speeches. And basically what was the, the key to all of this was when a reporter asked him, you know, how the hell have you been able to do all this stuff? How have you been able to achieve all of these different things all at the same time? And what Churchill says was that it ultimately came down to the conservation of energy. He said, never stand when you can sit, Never sit when you can lie down. Sounds like a bit of a lazy thing to do. But uh, he said that it's this ultimate balance between flat-out work but then finding some time for restorative leisure. It's a bit of a paradox. You think someone that productive is probably just working 24-7 but he's saying that lying down was his key to the productivity. <laughs> Very interesting. Crazy. So he, one of the things he did, he had a routine. Every morning, he got up at 8 a.m., had a bath, entered it at 98 degrees. I'm assuming Fahrenheit. Otherwise, he's just a wild man. <laughs> he's literally boiling. <laughs> he freshly bathed. He'd spend the next two hours reading. He responded to mail and political matters. Around noon, he'd say hello to his wife. Then he tackled whatever writing project he had on the go. It might be a speech, a report, or a book. Then after writing, he'd get dressed. He'd have lunch. He'd go for a walk around his estate, around the English countryside, feeding the swans and the fish. So, mate, a guy doing a leisurely <laughs> stroll is the same person we're talking about, this crazy productivity. At 3 p.m., this guy, he had a two-hour nap. <laughs> After his nap, he would have a second bath. Then at 8 p.m., he'd have a dinner with his family and then do more writing before he went to bed. 
and then he'd stick to this routine most days, including even on Christmas. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that he's been able to get all this stuff done, but it's only a very short window where he's actually working really, really hard. The rest is in the bath or taking a nap or feeding the ducks uh, in the literal sense, not in the, in the, uh, in the euphemistic sense. Uh, he also had this physical activity where he took up bricklaying later in his life and he wrote a letter to the Prime Minister uh, at one time when he wasn't obviously the Prime Minister and he said that, you know, I've had this delightful month. Every day I've laid 200 bricks and written 2,000 words in my book. So mm. he literally would go out there and, you know, he enjoyed that slow methodical process of mixing the mortar, troweling, stacking the bricks. He felt like it wasn't tiring him. That physical activity was actually invigorating him. Mm. And he had other hobbies. So he took up oil painting as well and he was introduced this by his sister-in-law and he found it as a way of releasing some of the stress by just using the brush and just focusing on the strokes of it and he wrote as another one of his hobbies and that's how he got to so many books but what he said to be really happy and really safe one ought to have at least two to three hobbies and they must be all real interesting yeah so interesting that the guy who's done all this crazy stuff saying you need to have a whole bunch of different hobbies on the go at one time you know for him it was the the bricklaying the oil painting the writing so in order to cultivate stillness of the body which is a third element of stillness we need we need to rise above our physical limitations we need to find hobbies that rest and replenish us we need to develop reliable disciplined routines we need to spend time getting outdoors we need to learn to sit and do nothing and we need to make sure that we get enough sleep and rein in that workaholism. It's not about working 24-7. It's about working in short, sharp sprints and then resting and restoring. So the final section of Holiday's book, it's all about this stillness of the body. And the Churchill was an absolute weapon at doing this, obviously. And one of the things that we should be doing to cultivate this stillness is to get rid of your stuff. And this is something I think none of us do. As default, as you go through life, you accumulate more and more possessions what Holiday's saying is you need to go the other way. Just release, let go, let go of more and more stuff because all this stuff is just baggage that gets in the way of this stillness. Epictetus was born a slave and eventually he received his freedom. And obviously coming from nothing, he had no stuff. When he finally earned his freedom, he gradually built up more and more stuff, even though it was against the philosophies that he was teaching. What he did one day, he went out and bought this fancy expensive iron lamp and he kept this lamp burning all night in this small shrine inside his home one evening, he heard a ruckus down the hallway. He rushed, but he noticed the thief had gotten away and they'd stolen his favorite fancy expensive iron lamp. So like anybody, he was feeling a bit surprised. He was feeling disappointed. He was feeling violated that someone had broken into his home and stolen his shit. He was feeling sad that he'd lost his favorite lamp, but then he remembered his own teachings of stoicism. And he said to himself, tomorrow, my friend, you go out and find an ordinary clay lamp because a man can only lose what he has. So for the rest of his life, he kept this cheap clay lamp that did the job of lighting up the things that needed to light up. But if he lost it, it wasn't the end of the world. Yeah, there's a quote here by Ksumzi of the East. And he says, the gentleman makes things his servants. The petty man is servant to things. So in short, mental and spiritual independence matter very little if the things we own in the physical world end up owning us. A shout out to one of the books we're about to do in the next season the Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. And she says a lot of people have their life changed by going through the process of tidying up. And it's exactly this. So in this book, it tells you to go around your whole entire house, hold every single thing in your hand, every single possession, <laughs> then ask yourself, does it spark joy? If it does, you keep it. If it doesn't, 
you throw it out. <laughs> so basically everyone's life's changed just purely by just getting rid of, you know, 80% of all their shit and then they look around, they're not holding all the baggage anymore. Mm, yeah. A lot of philosophers have come to this similar realization where Seneca was saying that, you know, it's often that the slave owner actually gets owned by their slaves and that the more slaves they have, they have to manage these slaves and it's going to take up a lot more of their time to be thinking about the slaves. And he says that the, the wealthy man, they're the ownership of property is just more things that they've got to manage. The more properties they own, the more times they've got to go out and cut the grass and mm. keep things in order. Montaigne, he also talked about the fact that he was wondering if he owned his pet cat or if his pet cat owned him. And I'd say that uh, my dog Charlie definitely owns me. <laughs> <laughs> Takes up a lot of my time and focus thinking about uh, looking after this dog. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen Charlie in the, in the corona world. Charlie loves me more than you, though, I think. <laughs> Still still urinates with excitement every time she sees you. Yeah, no, it's exciting. And releasing all your stuff can be hard because when you buy a lot of shit you don't need, you get so used to this new level of comfort and convenience and this luxury is almost inconceivable to live without it. Like I don't own a Lambo, but imagine if you own a Lamborghini and you're driving around and you're just so worried about it getting scratched. And yes, it does give you some kind of status, but does it actually add more to your life or take away from it in the whole yeah, he says that you should think about the family that never sees each other because both parents are working overtime to pay for the extra bedrooms that they bought at the big fancy house but they never get to use. Or think of the fame that keeps the traveling rock star on the road so much so that they're a stranger to their kids. Or think of the you know the technology that we buy that turns out to be a pain in the ass. We can't figure it out. We get so frustrated. We feel like smashing it. We've tried to buy ourselves this luxury, but all mm. we've really bought ourselves is more headaches. Mm. There's, a, there's a funny dot point under here from our <laughs> notes a few weeks ago. So the fancy, expensive possessions that we're constantly cleaning, buffing, protecting, and trying to find slot ways to slowly mention in conversation. <laughs> And then you got under this dot point, Adam Ashen to throw Adam Jones under the bus on this one. <laughs> but the funny thing is, I know you don't remember what you meant here and you obviously had a bit of tension with me for some reason. I wrote these... So I'm going to reverse throw you under the bus <laughs> and tell us what that was all about, mate. I wrote these, these notes like two, three weeks before we recorded it and I'm trying to think. I think I remember what it was and it wasn't about the bag that you bought, the leather bag from Canada that that's come up a couple of times on the app. Mate, you're not wearing a watch at the moment. I definitely remember that there was one day hmm. you had a new watch and I felt like you must you, you must have like kept checking your watch. Like every two minutes you check the watch because you were trying to slyly work it into conversation for me to ask, oh, is that a new watch? Oh. <laughs> Do you remember that? <laughs> that watch is gone, mate. It's, it's broken. It broke. I reckon you, checked, you must have checked that watch like... 12 times in a 20-minute period. Yeah. Or well, maybe unconsciously I was trying to get you to ask. <laughs> but did you ask? I never asked because I, I thought you wanted me to ask, so I never did. <laughs> I don't remember trying to get that, but maybe you should have just given me a bit of satisfaction, mate, for having a new watch. But that's no, not stillness. What happened, what happened to the watch? You lost it. Broke. <laughs> I don't know how it broke. But that's not stillness, is it? <laughs> that's not stillness because you've got this fancy expensive watch you're probably worried about scratching it you're probably worried about it breaking but at the same time you wanted me to notice it and mention hey that's a nice new watch you've well, got probably there. wasn't worried about it breaking because it <laughs> broke it <laughs> in two weeks <laughs> so we need to take action and get out from under all of the shit that you've got that's controlling you and even beyond that you need to get rid of it give it away to other people throw it away anything that you don't need just just clear it all out that's it. If we realize that our stuff that we own is actually owning us, we need to take a step back and get rid of it uh, by you know, getting rid of some of that shit that we've got around us. 
Another important thing about finding stillness of the body is to find a hobby. We talked about Churchill's hobbies and he said that it's important that everyone should have a hobby. We've got a, another UK Prime Minister now. This is William Gladstone, who was the Prime Minister of four different times, actually, over the space of uh, 15 years in the late 1800s. And he had this really unusual hobby where he'd go in, out into the woods and carry a big axe with him and chop down massive trees with his bare hands. So again, this is someone who's Prime Minister of a full country and he's just walking into the woods with his axe and just chopping down trees and bringing his family with him. Like over his career, he chopped over 1,000 trees with his axe and obviously taking loads of time in doing this seems like a somewhat of a pointless exercise, but it really isn't. This hobby of chopping down trees allowed him a period again of rest. If you think back, just like Churchill did, he had so much rest throughout his day. It's a chance to get away from the day-to-day life, do something completely different and use the body instead of his mind uh, to find these, these moments of stillness. And activities like chopping trees, hiking, mountain climbing, all these kind of things gave him relief from the pressure of politics and a challenge for which effort was always rewarded and with which the opponents could not interfere. Yeah, that thing was just something of his own. Rather than just thinking about, oh, this guy said this to me in parliament today or what am I going to do tomorrow? What's this, the solution to this problem I'm facing right now? He'd go into the woods and just focus, where is my axe going to fall next? He was able to let go of everything that was going on in his mind and focus purely on something in his body. And Holiday found that all sorts of people have got all sorts of different hobbies, all these successful people. Jesus, he used to take his rest by going out on, on the water and fishing with his disciples Seneca himself used to take rests by writing long letters by hand. Mother Teresa loved to dance. The sword master, Miyamoto Musashi, took up painting. Pythagoras played the lyre. Einstein played the violin. And Chris Bosch, the NBA superstar, taught himself how to code. Mm. So the ability to be at leisure is one of the basic powers of the human soul. It's not the absence of activity. It comes from directly through some activity. So the thing that is absent in these moments of when you're pursuing a hobby, it's the external justification. You're not doing it out there to please anyone or achieve some specific outcome. You're just simply doing it for the sake of just doing it. So I think a lot of people out there find it very difficult to justify their time when they're spent doing a new hobby like playing the guitar or doing jujitsu or going out there and doing boxing or anything like that. But this is absolutely vital and it actually does help whatever you're trying to do. And it was key to a lot of successful people getting to where they got. Yeah, the good news is that this leisure activity can be anything, you know, chopping down trees, learning a new language, camping, restoring old cars, riding horses, knitting, running marathons, assembling a puzzle, learning the guitar, ladling soup at the homeless shelter. Anything like this can be a hobby as long as you're not uh, applying some kind of outcome to it. I think that's probably the, the hard thing for competitive people the point is to take up a hobby with no intention of becoming the best at this thing. It's not to become a rock star and go out on the road and play your guitar in front of thousands of people. It's purely to learn the guitar, to struggle for yourself and learn this for your own sort of internal stillness and sense. So I think the important thing here is to not let your hobby become another thing that you're competing to try to become the best at. So if we think back to the very start of the episode where we had Seneca who was struggling with all of the chaos around him, all of the fat dudes getting massages on the, on the street, the kids playing in the pool outside, the gymnasts down below making noise, the pickpocketers getting arrested, 
that was a crazy time. But today, we've got all of that plus so much more. We've got our mobile phones going off. We've got car horns beeping. We've got the radios or podcasts or alarms or chainsaws or airplanes. And we've got social media that's trying to pull out attention all of the time. All of our personal professional problems are overwhelming us just as much today, probably more so today than ever. Yeah, we're overfed, undernourished, overstimulated, overscheduled, but also lonely. So stillness lies naturally within us, but accessing it is not easy and stillness is the key. So accessing stillness means we can do less and do more at the same time. We can accomplish more, but need it less. We can feel better and be better at the same time. To achieve stillness, we need to focus on three domains, the domain of the mind, the domain of the body, and the domain of the spirit. Thank you for listening to that episode. We love reading any reviews that come through your platform of choice. A couple of recent ones we liked was uh, Listen to Many, Liked Them All by AKAKB2020 on Apple Podcasts in Canada. We also liked Grateful for This Podcast by Tan Never Die uh, from someone in the US. Everything that comes through, we love reading these reviews, gives us a little bit of fuel to keep us uh, optimistic that we're on the right track. So we'd love to hear any thoughts you've got for the podcast. Please leave us a review.